0: This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial.
1: It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful.
0: Even conventional or
1: complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think.
2: Think Health on 2SER 107.3.
1: Hello and welcome to Think Health. I'm Jack Malcolm. On the show today,
0: the direct medical cost of asthma alone is 1.1 billion dollars. That's pretty. That's crazy. Seems very high, yeah. A nationwide
1: pollen monitoring network that would work to reduce the harms of asthma, and our subpar sports facilities steering young people off the sports field. That's today on Think Health. it up first so
3: it's called step connection yeah that's the name i don't know why we came up with that name we just like <laughs> you know messing with the words and it's the kinet, but it's all it's a stepping game so it's like connecting this point and we just said ah, step connection doesn't make sense but it's catching like people might remember it
1: this is jamie garcia Jamie is a lecturer in the School of Software at the University of Technology, Sydney. And he is also the brains behind a game called Step Connection. And it's one that takes you around the
3: world. Off to India. Yeah, off to India. Welcome to India. Uh, You're supposed to go through all these different countries, dancing to different music, and you're going to be collecting fruits.
0: Collect as many mangoes as you can.
3: So collecting fruits will give you money and you can use that money to you know, unlock new levels and keep travelling. You play the game using an
1: interactive camera, which means you're not slumped down on the couch. You play standing up. The camera will register your movements as you wave your arms to the right, as you shake
3: your leg to the left. So You don't have to press any buttons or anything. It's, it's intuitive. You just point to the thing on the screen and it happens. Your feet
1: appear as little footprints on the screen and you collect the fruit by tapping your foot in that direction. But there are also
3: things you're trying to watch out for. And don't step on the ladybug. Yeah. You have to make a quick decision to avoid the obstacles. So we give points for if you don't step on it.
2: Remember, step as fast as you can.
1: So the game might sound
3: somewhat simple, but it's simple for a reason. Uh, One in three seniors every year have a fall. And I think the main motivation for us to do this game was my personal experience. Like my grandma had a fall and it was really hard for her to recover and we couldn't get her to exercise at all. And when I started doing my PhD, I was going through all the literature review, trying to see what was out there using games to prevent falls and there was no much. So, we started looking at some fall prevention uh, test to assess the risk of falling, and we said, "You know we can make this fun and we can make it in a way that people engage to this and that's that's how we came up
1: um in terms of when you're talking about a fall, what constitutes a fall?
3: A fall is when you lose balance mainly, so like there's some severe consequences like people can get brain injury damage can get well, they can break a hip. One of the most common things is uh, developing a fear of falling, which affects the independence of all these people because they don't want to go outdoorsy anymore. Everything looks risky, so they like stop exercising, and stop moving. How does this game help, kind of get people back on their feet, so to speak? So the game it's a fall prevention game, not a rehab game. The whole idea behind the game is to get people to be more active and train a few things. The ability to take a quick step, which is important to prevent a fall from happening, and also the ability to make quick decisions in case the environment changes. Like, for instance, as I said before, if they're walking on the street and there's a slippery surface and they kind of just lose balance, if they manage to take a quick step in the opposite direction of the fall, they might prevent the fall from happening. And that's what the game is actually trying to do, trying to get people to exercise and improving reflexes in a way and it's pretty much just having your brain to send a signal to your leg and you know make a move and that's something that with aging we get slow at
1: and have you seen after maybe someone who has had a fall and has since played the game have you seen their reaction times improve
3: we would run a lot of like clinical assessments so the study was run for like 12 weeks every four weeks we would come and visit them run a whole bunch of tests like reaction time tests, cognitive tests, and We notice an improvement, so over time, in average, they all improve by 11%. And and
1: what does that 11% mean, really? Or what does that indicate?
3: So we use something called the Choice Step Reaction Time Test, and it's a stepping test created by the guys at Neuroscience Research Australia a few years ago. The test involves the person standing on a platform and taking quick steps according to some stimuli presented on the platform. You get the average response time from 20 trials, and that gives you a number, say 100 milliseconds. When people started playing with this game, we noticed that that number was getting lower and lower and lower, which means they're getting faster and getting more coordinated and you know, improving their uh, ability to take those quick steps. So that's a good outcome.
1: What was the option, or what would people do before things like this, to, if they'd experienced a fall, and, and try and prevent them in the future?
3: Some of the things that we saw in the villages, like we took this game to a couple of retirement villages and they were telling us about some fall prevention exercises they have. Like, for instance, exercise physiologists will come on Thursdays every morning and we'll have a session with them and they'll go through some exercises and they have to do a lot of repetitive tasks. But most of them say that's so boring, like they don't really like it. Like, I know we know it's cool, we're gonna, we know it's going to help us, but at the same time it's like, you know, you just got to move your leg, move your arm, do this, do that. 10 times then switch your leg and that's the, that's not fun and that's when we saw the potential of using this game to get them to exercise because the fun component of the game it is kind of engaging and it helps that adherence. and did you see they were keen to to have a go yeah it was funny we actually had a presentation we went to the village had a, the game so we let them play with the game and um, they like we gave them an expression of interest form because we we didn't want to be like too pushy, so we said we're going to do this study, it's going to help you. Uh, if you're interested, just give us a call, and a lot of people did. Although the game is meant for people who've had a fall, it's not designed for everyone. Some of them were uh, colorblind, which is not, we couldn't, like they can play the game that way. Or some of them like, had a knee replacement recently, so they're not really fit. And also we tried to get the GPs to give us some uh, letters saying they're fit enough to play with this. Some of them were not. So what is the, I guess,
1: the benchmark for someone to be able to play
3: this? Uh, I guess someone who lives independently with no issues, like someone using a walk stick wouldn't be able to play the game. Or someone with a mild cognitive impairment. I think anyone can do it as long as they can still walk, they can still do daily activities like cooking, going to a toilet, that kind of thing. For some of those people that you'd mentioned, perhaps someone who was
1: colorblind or someone who was walking on a cane or, or had knee reconstructive surgery, is there scope for these types of games to kind of branch out even further and, and be able to work for these people who might not be able to play this one just yet?
3: Uh, yep, there is a new, well, there is a new research project going on with one of my uh, colleagues. and looks at instead of stepping on the on the like using stepping, it's tapping on the surface. The action of tapping, which is being performed with the hand, has sufficient power to improve your balance in a way. Also, we're looking into the VR headset, so we're trying to see if maybe we can use VR and the tapping app instead of the Kinect. It's a lot easier that way, it's more portable, it's cheaper, like this thing was just 15 bucks on eBay, and if you have a mobile phone, you just slide it in, put it on, can play with the game. So we're looking into that at the moment.
1: Jamie Garcia, lecturer in the School of Software at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Well, we may be a month into autumn, but that doesn't mean some of us aren't still feeling the effects of hay fever. And for people with asthma, this is much more likely. Medical researchers and scientists from around the country met in Victoria last week at an asthma symposium to talk establishing a nationwide pollen monitoring network called the Australian Pollen Allergen Partnership or OzPollen. Currently, Australia has no standardized system to monitor the rates of pollen, which when transported through the air can heighten the symptoms of asthma cause general discomfort and flu-like symptoms, and in more serious events, result in hospitalisation. Alfredo Huete is one of the lead researchers in developing Auspollen, and he also attended last week's symposium. Alfredo started off by telling me the annual medical costs of asthma across the country,
0: which are pretty extensive. The direct medical cost of asthma alone is $1.1 billion. That's pretty... That's crazy. Seems very high, yes. So
1: does that, uh, those costs involved, is that for things like medications or things like inhalers? What, what is this direct
0: cost that's costing $1.1 $1. $1 billion? I guess everything involving patient and doctor visits and medication and treatments. The medication itself can be quite expensive in some situations. And counting the indirect costs, They estimate $30 billion. And what's indirect costs of that? I guess we're talking about not just direct patient-doctor involvement, but all of the ancillary services might go into this, like ambulances and people missing work, school kids having problems. So all of these add up. They're indirect, but they add up to the total cost of uh, grass pollen problems. But I think what's quite amazing, too, is that from the mid-1970s, there was not very much problem so it's been like in the last 40 years that you've seen this steady rise in hay fever and this problem with uh, grass pollen we actually don't know why so we're trying to understand there's all kinds of people that have uh, different views on that subject but it is unknown
1: and what are some of those differing views on that
0: if we 're going back to 1970s I guess we can imagine that maybe we 're stirring up urbanization of cities is stirring up surrounding prairie urban areas that are rural and all kinds of land use activities there in Victoria in particular they 're sort of blaming the prevalence now of rye grass, which is a introduced species it 's not native and same thing here there 's a lot of invasive species that are being a blamed or directly linked to some of these allergy problems and asthma.
1: I want to go now to talk about that Australia has no national pollen monitoring program. What is a pollen monitoring program? Like, what are you monitoring, just levels of pollen?
0: Yes, there are these spore traps. So you set these spore traps up at certain heights. Usually you put them on the tops of buildings in the hospitals or universities, and then these sport traps are continuously inhaling the air and sampling, collecting the pollen. So I saw one just recently that's a little bit different. It has a placeholder to put a slide in there, and then basically it breathes in, or the instrument keeps collecting the air, and the pollen settle along this slide. And then during the course of the day, and of course during several days, it kind of creates different bands along the slide related to the time of day or which day in particular. And then basically then, whether it's every day or in some situations every week, someone's going to go up there manually and collect the slide, replace it with a new slide, and take that slide into a laboratory. And then using electronic microscopes, you have the task now of manually counting those pollen grains. So you can identify a whole host of pollen grains when you're there. And then your task now is to count how many of those pollen grains you see.
1: Right. And then so after doing all that sampling, what's the significance of doing that? What is that information telling you?
0: Yeah, so typically that might tell you the number of pollen grains per cubic meter of air. And then what a pollen monitoring system like this will do is then they'll report what the pollen count was today or what the pollen count is week by week. And then you need to collect this data so you can trace... The relationship between pollen in the air and people with hay fever and asthma problems. And what we found basically is that asthma admissions to hospitals are seasonal. So there's a nice seasonal trajectory. As you can see sometimes it's high, sometimes it's low. By the same token, when you report on your pollen counts, you'll also see that there's a seasonality to the pollen. So people know to get ready and they know that. It's going to start getting bad for the next few weeks. That's going to be a lot of pollen in the air.
1: Is that like around
0: springtime mostly? In Sydney, there's a, a very high pollen peak that usually occurs in the springtime. But Sydney in particular has pollen year-round. That's due to the fact that Sydney has what we call is it's sort of like a, a zone that's mixed, meaning we have cool-season grasses and warm-season grasses. So we actually have two pollen peaks. So we can get one in the autumn and we can get one in the spring, but the spring will usually be the much stronger one.
1: And so you're saying you've seen these monitoring stations around Sydney?
0: Um, The most recent one, of course, is the one in Victoria.
1: But if Australia has no monitoring program in place, what are you trying to do to install a pollen monitoring program here in Australia?
0: In one aspect, we can say there has been monitoring. One thing that happened at this initial TURN meeting is that representatives from the very few number of pollen monitoring traps that have been set up in Australia, everyone is doing it differently. So that means there is no standardized. The other thing that came out is that you'll see that someone can only collect October through December. Others can collect much longer periods during the year. And many have these big gaps where like for three years, nothing, because again, there is no established pollen monitoring network. The emphasis now to develop this OS pollen network is to do away with all that and actually get one consistent stream of data from all locations.
1: And what do we need to get us to that point of having this national standardized OS pollen monitoring network?
0: We did have the um, NHMRC proposal a partnership project funded, and what this allows is for this OSPAL and team to get together with sufficient funding to purchase additional spore traps and also to have the capability to standardize the measurements, set the exact height, the right type of locations, do the same type of sampling the same type of equipment, and follow the standards that you might see from international programs, so like the World Meteorological Organization, gets together with uh, health organizations and they try to establish international standards. So Australia is trying now to upgrade their equipment and and reach the same level that you see in other places.
1: And what is the point? So you have this monitoring network. What's the medical end
0: goal here? Mm -hmm. Well, on one hand, it's very important for patients to have information so that's very powerful. Just having the ability to know what's going on out there. As part of this AusPollen network, we're using the smartphones technology of apps. Already many of these cities like Sydney, Canberra, Melbourne, and a few other places already have their apps working. So you can log into an AusPollen and tap into their web apps mm. and get your own information yourself. What is the pollen count today? So that will be reported along with what it's predicted for the next day. If it is going to be very bad pollen days, then you as a patient can make the decisions to stay indoors more or avoid exposure outside. Again, just having that power to do that to yourself is very important.
1: Alfredo Huete, Distinguished Professor in the Climate Change Cluster at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Think Health on 2 CR 107.3. Globally, it's recommended that young people do an hour of physical activity a day, but only 15% of Australia's youth are meeting these guidelines. A new community development project in the Faculty of Health and School of Architecture at the University of Technology Sydney is working on revitalising sports facilities and offer for young people – with some facilities being more than 50 years out of date. I spoke with Fiona Brooks and Deborah Barnstone, two leaders of the project, about the challenges of getting kids active when the only facilities available to them are subpar.
4: They are old. They're usually located in areas that are not ideal for sports. So um, a great example is the soccer pitches, which tend to be along the Cook River. And, of course, the Cooks River rises and then it can flood the fields. Whenever it rains, the fields become saturated because they weren't designed properly for drainage. So, And also there are just issues with the maintenance of the fields, the lack of turf surfaces, proper nets. And this is just soccer pitches. And the same issues exist around all of the different codes. So,
1: Are we looking at that kind of... More of these local facilities, like local ovals or, or yeah. local park facilities. Yeah, these absolutely. are the ones.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So we're really interested in grassroots sport, not in elite sport. Elite sport. Also has issues, but they're different issues, and and elite sport only catches a very small group of youth. So what our concern is are the kids who are in the neighborhood and need something to do after school and are likely to play in the local cricket club or the local AFL club or the local soccer club or whatever, um, really substandard facilities for a whole host of political reasons.
1: Right, and so what might some of those be? Why are they substandard?
4: Well, it has to do with who's responsible for maintaining them, where where the money comes from in the state, and the fact that the clubs rent the space, but it's actually the local council that's responsible for the upkeep. And as you know, councils don't have a lot of money. There isn't a proper mechanism for upkeep.
1: So to go, I guess, to the health side now as well, when you have these facilities which don't really meet the benchmark to encourage young people to participate in different sporting activities. Fiona, what sort of effect or what sort of message does this send to young people?
2: Globally, it's recommended that young people do at least an hour's physical activity a day. The issue is that no country's got this right. So in no country does the majority of young people actually do an hour a day. Even in countries which are quite high, it's around 24%. The figure here in Australia is around 15%. And that Hour a day is just what you need to maintain health, not to get super fit, not to be really sporty and active, but just to maintain health. What does that mean to maintain? To just be, to support musculoskeletal development, to support your brain development. I mean, physical activity is really linked to brain development these days. To support the whole functioning of your your body, really, um, and to prevent obesity in the long run. So that's just kind of the basic minimum. So we've got to look at the offer to young people around sports participation. So how can we get them to actually enjoy what they're doing, value it, and it to be part of their life and into adulthood? One of the issues is that the offer we are giving young people around sports participation and sports activities is about 50 years out of date. It's traditional team sports, it doesn't involve young people in structuring and organising the sporting activities and there's very little professional coaching here in Australia. So we need to look at what actually young people say they want to do, how they want to participate in sport and what sort of offer would really meet their needs.
1: What do you think young people want today? Because I imagine a lot of young people are actually getting their Physical activity being an avatar on an iPad. What do young people want in terms of the capacity of being able to pursue physical activity or pursue sports?
2: Yeah. We've actually done some research on this in the UK and when we looked at it computer game playing didn't seem to have any impact at all on your ability to participate in sport, as long as the offer around sport was something you wanted to do. So it's more about making sport compete more effectively with the other range of leisure activities young people have. It should be fun, it should be a choice activity, it should be something they want to do and something they gain skills and development from. And that's what young people have said to us previously they want from a sport offer. So that's what we need to look here in Australia.
1: And I'm sure that they'd want above-standard facilities too. So, Deborah, for you, when it comes to looking at this and then actually implementing those facilities, what do they look like? Do they look new and improved? Are they different from sporting facilities that we've had in the past?
4: Mm. There are several problems that we know anecdotally we need to address. Those include multi-sport offers, so places where mom and dad can hang out, where you can get a beer, where you can get french fries, where there's a playground or some other facility for younger siblings. So that going to, whether it's soccer or cricket or um, whatever code that um, the kids are participating in, isn't just a field, with a few benches on the side. The other aspect is that the facilities tend to be very poorly maintained. The dressing rooms are appalling. If there are bathrooms, and there are not always bathrooms on the sites, they're really, really dirty. I mean, I've gone into several where there's, they're, they're not maintained. There's no toilet paper. There are spiders everywhere.
2: So there are a whole range of issues that we have to address in the design realm. One of the things we also need to think about is gender because Mm -hmm. girls' participation in sport is even lower than boys'. So we really need to think about how we can make sport attractive to women's young women's participation and really provide an offer that is suitable for them and meets their what they really want from from a sports provision.
1: And how do you aim to do that through this particular project?
2: Well one of the things we're going to embed right from the beginning is young people's participation. So we are working with schools we're going to be working with young people to actually get them to design and work with us around the design mm. of the offer, mm-hmm. right from the beginning, right I'll from say. the get-go. Yeah. So on several different levels.
4: Mm. So first of all, we're going to go into the, into 15 schools in Hurlstone Park, Canterbury, and um, and administer a survey that asks a range of questions around sports that you participate in, what you like and don't like, the facilities, you know, the whole range of, mm-hmm. of things that we need to know more about. Then we're going to go and ask the kids, probably the older ones, um, because we'll be looking at a range from 11 to 16. Uh, We're going to ask them, so what would you need to hear or what would you need to see in order to change your mind about participation. So it's not just what's on offer, but it's also how that offer is presented. And we know it's marketing, but we know that that makes a big difference too. Um, And we also are pretty sure that there's a social element to this because kids in that age range, 11 to 16, are incredibly aware of what their peers are involved in. So in some ways, we also need to inspire them as a group
2: to want to do something. We're going to ask them to design that. So it's about the whole 360 degrees kind of reassessment of what we need to do around sport.
4: I know from my kids who have participated in club sport here, a huge issue is how the sport is taught in the clubs. And the fact Fiona mentioned already that um, grassroots clubs and even elite clubs here tend to have coaches who aren't trained. And there's still a, dare I say, very old fashioned idea that coaching is about yelling and screaming at the youngsters and we know that turns off the boys it completely alienates mm-hmm. the girls as Fiona will tell you um, girls just don't want to be screamed at. They, they want to have fun you know mm-hmm. so, so this is really about a, a holistic re-examination of what's on offer how it's being offered how things are being marketed to the youngsters you know the entire package and how families are involved
1: Fiona Brooks from the Faculty of Health and Deborah Barnstone from the School of Architecture, both from the University of Technology, Sydney. That's all we have time for today on Think Health. If you'd like to find out anything more about today's show, head to 2ser.com forward slash Think Health. If you have any questions after today's show, make sure you go and see your GP. Make sure you also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. to search for Think Health. We're also available on iTunes. Think Health is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next time.